America, bonjour, hi, Canada. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. It's time for the Hillsdale Dialogue this week with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. If you've been listening, we did four different Hillsdale Dialogues on Tocqueville, who wrote in the 1830s. And that brings us up to the career of a man I think is just evil. Uh, Larry Arn will recognize his brilliance in some respects, but I just think he threw America off course, John Calhoun. And if you were listening on the 5th of July, you heard Joseph Ellis talk about the cause and how at the end of the revolution, both Jefferson and Washington thought slavery was headed for extinction, for withering away, for a, 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 an entombment. And if anyone is responsible mostly for its resurrection, it's John Calhoun. Larry Arn, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I, I did have this interesting conversation with uh, Professor Joseph Ellis, whose new book, The Cause, could have written by you, a synthesis of political thought up through uh, the end of the Revolutionary War. And they all thought it was dead, and Lincoln saying all honor to Jefferson, they all thought it would go away. And Washington was sort of embarrassed by it, and Jefferson thought it inco incompatible with his declaration, but then arrives Calhoun on the scene. What is it that he did? Why is he a menace to good thinking? Well, he didn't do it by himself, of course. Uh, he did it because he was the conduit. He, was, he wasn't the only one, but he was a prime conduit of a new set of, a new account of, of humanity and politics. Uh, Calhoun studied at Yale and then, or shortly after then, he got to know well a man named Francis Liebing, who also knew Tocqueville, Calhoun knew Tocqueville. And Liebing was a very interesting guy. He, he wrote uh, what became the Geneva Convention. Uh, he was a German immigrant. He was an academic kind of guy. Uh, and he wasn't crazy, but he'd been around Friedrich Hegel a lot. And that's the birth of the school of German historicism. And that, that school uh, uh, has to be, uh, it's, I, I'll put it simply, <clears throat> if it's true that your being is dominated by the influences upon you, by where you grow up, <clears throat> excuse me, by what you do for a living, stuff like that, then uh, we, we don't really have any freedom unless, we can find a way to dominate all those influences. Then we could become our own creators. The birth of big government in America is in that set of reflections. And Calhoun turned that set of reflections to slavery. Uh, in, in the, in the uh, relation between the master and the slave, all whites become aristocrats, he says. He also thought that slavery was the solution to what German thought was already teaching in Calhoun's time. Uh, you know, wrote, uh, Marx wrote in the middle of the 19th century, and Calhoun died in 1850, uh, that the inevitable conflict between uh, capital and labor is diffused by slavery. And he, he's so <clears throat> that, that set of thoughts, and so he is an out-and-out uh, out out critic of the Declaration of Independence, it doesn't have anything to do with the founding of the country. It was just a obiter dicta, you might say. You lawyers might say, and and uh, and not nature, but history 
is the governing thing. Now, and I, I, am, I am not much for renaming buildings and tearing down statues. I am for taking Calhoun off of Yale College. And I, I say that uh, having read this, you know, his, his intellectual histories, which are formidable to deal with, and knowing that his career was of a piece with his time, but he, and by the way, it's distinguished career for the time, House of Representatives, Secretary of War, Secretary of State, Vice President for two presidents, I believe the only Vice President who served under two presidents, and a power. Am I right? He's a power in the United States. Well, it's a good idea to make the case for him, right? There is a great case. Um, he was a, an interesting combination. He was a radical states writer, uh, and, and uh, uh, he was also a nationalist. And knit the country. He was a major uh, force in winning the War of 1812, uh, and you know he was a big Union guy, but he was a states' rights guy. And if you know states' rights sounds like a good thing these days because a bunch of good states are fighting the federal maw. But what's wrong with the doctrine is states don't have rights; people do, and states have authorities. And the federal government has authorities from the people, and the states have authorities from the people. And that's their claim. Not in Calhoun and not in some uh, contemporary thinkers. Um, uh, they, they, uh, uh, so in Calhoun, uh, representation, by the way, this is a phrase that he uses, is repeated in the University of Michigan's uh, uh, recommendations for redistricting. Because the, the rage in drawing district lines in, for elections is now communities of interest, right? That means, uh, uh, it means, what, what do you think it means? It means people of color and people of different sexes, however many there are of them and all that, right? And so now we're not just representing people, we're representing the communities in which people live. And, of course, we're going to have to assign them to those communities, right, which takes away their equal right to be represented. Well, that's a Calhoun doctrine fully developed. Uh, yeah, we have to have numerical majorities to decide many things, but if that's all you got, you don't have a constitution. You have to add in representing interests. And, of course, the slave interest was one such. Not the only one, though. You know, farmers, industrialists, everybody, right? And that's Hegel. Hegel, we get that frightful word we use. It's translation of a German name. I don't know what it is. Uh, we like to talk about stakeholders today. And uh, that means, that doesn't mean citizens who all have a stake. It means somebody with some special interest. It and, means everyone who's managed to elbow their way into the room and one wants to shut the door by virtue of... I, I've heard stakeholders for 30 years in the land use business, and it usually means people who have no business in the room. Yeah. Uh, Mark Tapscott, who has edited the Washington Examiner, had a guide for authors. I was warned once. And it says, we will not use the word stakeholders. If you need another word, rent seekers. leeches. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, you see, that, that is a, you know, Calhoun is for hierarchy, right? And in a different way than Thomas Jefferson was, uh, to, or Winston Churchill was, uh, Calhoun was for um, uh, an elite class. 
and they would add stability to the society. And so he and uh, uh, Calhoun fancied himself an Aristotelian. He was a well-read man, and you know his his writings. I, I'm going to read toward the end of this. I'm going to read an exact opposite paragraph by Calhoun, and then the same point in the opposite direction by Winston Churchill, and you'll see the difference. But Let's Calhoun save that was for a learned third man. Segment. Yeah, I want what? to save that. For, I want to save that for the third segment, so we don't step on it. Okay, but. Yeah. but when we when we come back, I want to do quickly the nullification crisis and what that pitted, Southerner against Southerner, Southerner against Northerner, Northerner against Northerner, the nullification crisis, I think. Would you agree with me? That, that's Calhoun's fault. Well, it was, it was a real political conflict, right? It was just turned to mischief as a, by Calhoun and others, especially Calhoun, uh, because it, he used it to advance his theory of states' rights. And, and you know, it's interesting because he had a precedent to draw on. In the Alien and Sedition Acts crisis, which we've talked about in recent weeks, um, both Jefferson and Madison wrote resolutions for states, calling on the states to inter- interpose, is Madison's word, uh, Jefferson is less judicious, and the power of the states to draw... Uh, and stop the federal government from, from breaching its authority, which, by the way, take it, said just that way and taken no further, that's entirely legitimate, right? You know, Ron DeSantis, uh, he's just... Well, much taken up, that far and no further. That's, that's the it. key. That's, that's it. it. And he seems when, to understand that. When we uh, come back, we're going to talk about the nullification crisis, and then in segment three we're going to do... Calhoun and Churchill, which I haven't heard before, so I'm looking forward to that. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, all things Hillsdale, are found at hillsdale.edu. Calhoun is a bridge that we have to cross, sadly, in American history, and we are doing so on the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay with us. There's a lot of spin on the news out there. Where do you hear the truth? Right here, as soon as Hugh Hewitt returns, this is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Hillsdale.edu for everything about Hillsdale, including an application for your loved ones who need a good college education. And all of our conversations with Dr. Arn and his many colleagues at Hillsdale are found at HughForHillsdale.com. Uh, my friend Charlie Kirk called up and wanted the original Jaffa hours, uh, Dr. Arn, which I sent him along with the two hours we played on the on the 3rd of July of you and I talking about Jaffa, talking about the Declaration of Independence. Uh, but now we're talking about Calhoun, and we're talking about John Calhoun and the nullification crisis about which little is written and less understood. Can you tell us what that crisis was? Well, around 1828 to 1832, there was a huge national controversy about tariffs. Uh, there's no question, by the way, that tariffs are constitutional. They are named as the source of revenue in the, in the Constitution of the United States. But the interest of the parts of the Union diverged. Uh, tariffs were passed in America in our first hundred years, somewhat today, too, to uh, support industry so we can have manufacturing here. And the country has an interest in manufacturing, of course, because... Uh, I always say I'm a free trader, and Churchill was a free trader, and Lincoln was not, and that means the natural law does not speak to me about this. 
But uh, but I, I'm a free trader. And on the other hand, should we, if North Korea can make our nuclear submarines cheaper, should we let them make them? Right. So the national interest has to come in. And so that's you know that's within the within those bounds and moderately put, that's not, in my opinion, anything like a bad argument or certainly not a fatal argument. Well, the. Uh, South didn't like those tariffs. The leading forces in the South didn't, because what they were exporting was food, right? And so, if you put tariffs on English manufacturers, then England will put tariffs in retaliation on what they get from us, which is farm stuff, right? And we have a huge advantage in that still in the world. So, um, he he uh, in 1828, I think it was, there was a big battle in Congress. And the Republicans were trying to beat the bill, and so they jacked the tariffs up to astronomical heights, 50 or 60 percent. And then they thought the South will never vote for that. <laughs> but they did. Yes. So there was this amazing tariff, huge, awful tariff, right? And so Calhoun, uh, who had been vice president under Andy Jackson, who left over this, uh, he came up with the idea of nullification, that a state could say that this federal law does not apply within its boundaries. And, you know, that's, you have to skip over very clear parts of the Constitution to believe that that's so. And among the people who got involved in this, and see, that means, by the way, that the two great, you might call them negative issues in Calhoun's life, and there were very many that I regard as positive issues, um, uh, <laughs> were the tariff and nullification connected to it and slavery. And those are big negatives. Um, I mean, one of them is fatal. So uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he get into a tangle with Andy Jackson about this. And Andy Jackson is very ready to send soldiers. And, uh, and then turns out James Madison is still alive and writes two articles about this in the North American Review. And so that's a very rich instance of the way federal, you know, if you want to study, I mean, by the way, Calhoun is hugely worthy of study. Um, and and uh, uh, But that's a big instance of studying how federalism works and what its boundaries are. Well, you, and, it, it's the same. It's worth studying. I want to be clear about in my opinion. It's worth studying the way that uh, General... Milley said you should study Marx and Lenin to understand what it is you're up against, because nullification is just, is just wrong. As Justice Marshall said in Baron v. Baltimore, a question of great importance but not much difficulty, as I think you just said, Dr. Arn. And the yeah, Constitution's pretty clear. That's it. And, and the fact that they were saying that, right, they had a, a new idea of sovereignty. That's, in, in the end, by the way, these disputes, Churchill liked to say uh, big wars often start on small occasions, but never for small causes. And so there was a fundamental dispute in America which came into the country from European historicism. When we come back, Calhoun versus Churchill. I told you I'd get back to it, and I meant that. Stay tuned to this Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu.
in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. The last radio hour of the week. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. Though we have been doing these programs for many, many years, we've never devoted an hour to Calhoun. John Calhoun, vice president under two presidents, secretary of war, secretary of state, member of the House of Representatives, political theorist, German. (laughs) By that I mean uh, of the German school. And Dr. Arn promised to contrast Calhoun and Churchill, which I'm looking forward to. I think you need the floor, though, for an extended period to do that. Well, I have to read two quotes, and I'll just read excerpts from them. Uh, uh, By the way, I should mention modern liberalism, the crazy stuff we got going on, its ideology or its historical sources are the same as the historical sources for John C. Calhoun. Yes. That's that's a very important thing to understand. Now, uh, Calhoun writes this whale of a book called The Disquisition on Government. And I once, in an error, assigned the reading of an entire book to a bunch of the entire book to a bunch of fresh freshmen oh dear when they had a hundred other things to read and darned if they didn't read it it was really great i thought you guys are crazy but also very dutiful <laughs> dutiful uh, is, is uh, definitely anyway, true here's here's a crucial fifth in, in the book calhoun argues that you have to have this concurrent majority a numerical majority is important but also there has to be some other majority of communities right states or one such anyway he's talking about science and progress see calhoun is a progressive an aristocratic traditionalist progressive he's talking about the advance of science and how it's uh we don't know what the final bearing will be uh that it will greatly improve the condition of man ultimately it would be impious to doubt it would be to suppose that the all-wise and beneficent being, the creator of all, had so constituted man that he could employ his high faculties for evil. Now that's, you know, a very poor reading of the Bible, among other things, right? Yes, it is. Oh, but boy, that's is a, it. That's a utopian thing, right? And, and uh, now, exactly parallel to that, in maybe his most important writing, an essay called 50, 50 Years Hence, Churchill talks about an unfolding future of infinite material progress. He says, all this material progress does not meet any of the real needs of the human race. I read a book the other day which traced the history of mankind from the birth of the solar system to its extinction. Fifteen or sixteen races of men, they could live as long as they want. They had mastered nature. They could travel anywhere they wanted, including interplanetary. And now the key. But what was the good of all that to them? What did they know more than we know about the answers to the simple questions which man has asked since the earliest dawn of reason? Why are we here? What is the purpose of life? Whither are we going? No material progress, even though it takes shapes we cannot now conceive, or however it may expand the faculties of man, and bring comfort to his soul. See, that's two guys who are exactly opposite in their thinking about 
the purpose of human life, about the source of human and, and nature of human being. And that's what's wrong with the Calvinists. And I want progressives to be uncomfortable because they believe in perfection and they believe in utopia and they believe in this delusion, and it's an illusion and a delusion, that perfection is available. I also want to point out, now I've never read a full-scale biography of Calhoun, only the Cliff Notes. He moved from traditional religious believer to found the Unitarianism of the South, to be one of their original members who are up there in the sky somewhere is a being that wants us to proceed down a path that is not revealed and which we shall find uh, of our own design. Uh, and he's just like every other progressive I've ever met. Wrong, uh, Larry Arnn on this, and it leads him to vast errors, especially errors about all men being created equal. But he couldn't really admit it. And, and what I wanted to get to is, did he do this? Did he come to his conclusion and then take it to slavery? Or did he have to deal with slavery and take it to his conclusion? That's the wrong cue, guys. We're in the, we're in the long segment, so put it away. Uh, so... What was it? Did he start with slavery and reason to how he could keep it? Or did he reason to where he said, oh, this is here and we must keep it? Well, of course, we're describing the inner motives of the man, but here's what I think they are. First of all, nobody, not you, not me, not anybody listening here, picks just one particular thing and builds his whole being about that. There has to be some cause that's comprehensive at the center. And what I think that Calhoun was overcome by. I think he was overcome. I think he was a great man who fell to tragedy. And what was the thought? The thought was, we can live like God. We can know everything about God. And we can be an agent that, it, that becomes creators in ourselves. And that's the, that, that's the thought contained in German historicism. Uh, you know, Hegel's idea is, because everything changes and influences us, you can't really know anything. Just You're a victim of your time, except at the end. <coughs> when the end of history is reached, then you can look back and see it all. The poetic expression in Hegel is, the owl of Minerva flies at dusk. And, and so Calhoun is like that, right? He imagines, uh, he, first of all, he's a kind of manifest destiny guy. Well, except he didn't like the Mexican War because he thought he was going to make a conflict about slavery. He liked the Union very much. He wanted it to grow. He wanted it to be knit together, and he wanted it to be a bunch of communities that were aristocratic in their nature and had slavery. And his set of ideas that led him to think that that is the perfection that the United States of America can reach. Now, he, di he died in 1850, right, in the Civil War you know, in 1860. Uh, what, what uh, he didn't see it, right? You have to believe he would have been torn because he was a big believer in the Union. And he, <coughs> he gave a high priority to preserving the Union. Uh, my own guess is that scratch him and he would have sided with slavery. But, but that would have been a hard choice for him. Well, this and, is uh, what Joseph Ellis writes at length about, and you've talked with me many times about, is that Lincoln, in his Cooper's Union speech, details how every framer believed that slavery ought not to extend, and every framer believed it was on that course to extinction, and every framer believed in the Declaration of Independence. And Calhoun 
didn't agree with any of those things, including explicitly the Declaration. Yeah. That's, uh, and, you know, th- that's not controversial, right? Um, you can say what you want to about the framers, but the, to say that they were hypocrites about slavery is false, because hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. They didn't say a different thing than they did, and they made huge efforts, uh, in 60% union successful, to abolish slavery. Well, I have to disagree. Isn't Jefferson a hypocrite for sleeping with and having children by Sally Hemings and keeping her enslaved? Isn't that hypocritical? Um, well, that's uh, more than I know. Uh, but let's say it's true, right? He writes in the notes on the state of Virginia. That yes, he does. That beautiful thing. He, he writes in there that the commerce between the master and the slave is a scene of immorality. He calls sleeping with the slaves immoral, right? Not because they're black, but because they're not married, right? And because they're in a subservient position. So maybe he did that thing, but he condemned that in the same terms that he he condemned slavery. But you see, I think that is hypocritical. And Joseph Ellis says the DNA about... The Hemings family is irrefutable now. And he began by saying you would never be able to know, but now he says the DNA is... Yeah, blah, 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 blah. But it is. I mean, that's how we decide Somebody in Jefferson's family and Jefferson's brother hung out in the slave quarters all the time playing the fiddle. So maybe it was his brother. Okay, I haven't heard that argument before, but let's let's go with it is his family. I think hypocrisy best defined is saying one thing and doing the opposite at the same time. Not separated in time, not separated in space, but, but that's hypocrisy. Because hypocrisy well, is Well, it would be hypocrisy around. if he said, I never did that, right? I condemn the practice. He, he just condemned the practice. And, and uh, that's, so the point is, if he did that, shame on him, right? If he did that. But, uh, and that's correct, but isn't it better, by the way, if you're going to commit a, commit a vice, not to proclaim the good of it? Oh, yes. Yes. 100%. Hypocrisy is pref- preferable to calling evil good. Uh, Hypocrisy that... is vice-flattering virtue. And it's better to flatter virtue, right? <laughs> so that's, you know, that doesn't prove much, right? It, uh, it, it's, it's a very important thing, remember, like... If you read uh, Aristotle on slavery, which Calhoun did and just misunderstood it, uh, Aristotle portrayed it as something that you might have to accept, because most of it came from conquest, but he says emphatically, it's unjust except in the case of people who are impaired and can't care for themselves, right? And he says that even if you get slaves by conquest, you have to give them a chance to earn their freedom, right? Because... Otherwise, it's a truncation of human nature. And that means Thomas Jefferson's argument is contained in that argument by Aristotle. And and I I believe as well, it cannot be cruel. Uh, Even when people are impaired, it cannot be cruel. And that's the Christian argument. When we come back, uh, Lincoln, the, the foreshadowing of Lincoln. Calhoun dies, as Dr. Arnn said, in 1850. The war is 10 years away. But his ideas nurse the evil in the Supreme Court, and the one that Lincoln confronts 
Douglas about. Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue continues. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Larry Arn is my guest. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Dr. Arn, a lot of the arguments we have today, including one that I don't think is really an argument, it's rhetorical, it's sophistry, that the third verse of the Star-Spangled Banner celebrates slavery. It doesn't. It, it rejects British impressment of people and considers Great Britain to be the enslaver. But it, it, it's based in part on Francis Scott Key being the brother-in-law of Roger Taney. And I mean, it's just crazy rewriting of everything. If we dealt with the facts of what Washington and Jefferson thought and wrote, and aspired to, and then with what Lincoln said at Cooper's Union, we defeat Calhoun, do we not? We don't have to ignore him. He's defeated. Well, it would be wrong to ignore him even if we couldn't beat him, but because um, that would mean he had something to say. Well, he did have something to say. I mean, first of all, you do have to admit something about the founders of our country, and that is they did not believe, Abraham Lincoln did not believe, that he could compel the welcoming of people of different colors in as social and political equals. The country was not ready for that at the time, and that's just a fact. And, and the best Americans and the leading Americans recognized and bemoaned that fact. Although Lincoln in particular had to be careful about it because uh, he's, he's running he, for office. Yeah, he's running for office. And so the point is, anybody would be a fool to claim that America is a perfect society for the simple reason that it's a society of human beings, right? And there are evils in early America. I'm not confident that they're worse than the evils we have today. I mean, wow, what we do to children today and the way the family dies and the fact that we welcome that and don't protect it. And the, 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 the rampant crime in the country, you know, we're not exactly right here in America. Yeah, but but right slavery now. is by far a worse evil. By far. Uh, yeah. It, well, by far. I mean... Uh, by, by degrees, by an exponential degree, because you can escape everything else. Uh, you, you can't escape slavery except by risk of your life. You can escape... Destruction of the family, you can escape the crazy progressive, you can escape all that, you can't escape slavery. Well, absent a civil war. I mean, really? I mean, you can't escape slavery, many did, and it was overcome. And can you escape despotism? Come to find out that's really hard, right? And a lot of people are going to suffer. It, uh, you know, if we, if we sink into a despotism, if it becomes an unrepresentative country, That'll be extremely dangerous and painful. Well, you, you can't escape the CCP, the 100th anniversary of which just passed, right? You can't escape from that. Right. But, but America is self-correcting, and provided we don't change it, right? Provided we keep the Constitution, we will be fine. I really but do you, believe that. There is a serious and prolonged and powerful effort precisely not to keep the Constitution. I, I agree, but I, I don't, but I, my preface was, if we keep the Constitution, yeah. we can always recover. The Constitution is amended and understood. We need the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment in it. But then, I, I, maybe I'm too much of an optimist, Dr. Arn, and, and I think you are too, Larry, we mm -hmm. will be fine. 
I always say that. You know, we, well, <laughs> you know, yeah, no I, one ever I gets me. the prudence of Winston Churchill, who always thought about a big conflict. It will be hell, and then we'll win. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or I just talked to, about Nathaniel Green with uh, Joseph Ellis. We fight, we get beat. And we fight again. That's, that's, that's what his whole strategy was in, in the Southern strategy of the Revolutionary War. Yeah, and a great man, too, see. And that, you know, it's a, what an embellishment to a man's life to have worked in company and without interruption in the, with, with George Washington. Yes, and to, be, and to be esteemed by him. Oh, yeah. That, you know, I want to close there. One of the things that Ellis taught me that I hadn't fully appreciated is that Lafayette, Hamilton, and Lawrence... Lawrence, a South Carolinian, by the way, who sadly died with a British bullet in his chest after the war was all but over. The three of them worked on Washington every night, the way you work on your freshmen at Hillsdale and your sophomores. and your Every night they worked on him on the immorality of slavery. And it worked. It took a long time, but it worked. And he, he was embarrassed by slavery by the end of his life. Didn't know what to do. Hoped it would go away. Manumitted Billy Lee but didn't free anyone else when he died. And that was the working of Lafayette, Hamilton, and Lawrence. And Lawrence was a South Carolinian. Yeah, that's right. Well, most of them were, right? I mean, the, the people from South Carolina did not defend the institution of slavery at the Constitutional Convention. No, they didn't. You're right. They, they, they took, and now the Southern delegates did in the Continental Congress, take Jefferson's con condemnation of the king for bringing slavery here, which is, by the way, the culprit for the injury, because there wasn't any America when it came here. Um, uh, he, he, they, 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 they took that out. And, the re and what that does is that tells you something about public opinion. It tells you something negative about it, right? People were not ready for that. That's why we are going to revisit the Lincoln-Douglas debate, because that's where it's perfectly, oh gosh, it's so well illustrated there. But I think before that, we have to talk about Dred Scott. And I'll do that with Dr. Arn later in the summer. Don't go anywhere, America. Stay tuned to this great radio station, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. absolutely positively need the truth this is where you turn this is the hugh hewitt show